Welcome back to the Sound Mind Podcast. I'm Alex, and I have a few fun announcements. May is Mental Health Month, and tomorrow, April 27th, we'll be announcing our spring fundraising campaign. Starting tomorrow, you can go to soundmindmusician.org slash donate to help support mental health in the classical music world. This week, I had the amazing opportunity to interview Elizabeth Rowe. She's principal flutist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, as well as a mentor and coach. She's just an incredible person, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Sound Mind Podcast. I'm Alex, and I'm here today with the amazing Elizabeth Rowe. Miss Rowe is the principal flutist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, an advocate for equal pay practices in the classical music industry, and a coach slash mentor for young professionals. So needless to say, you're pretty busy. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's really my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here speaking with you. Yeah, thank you. So one thing that we usually start uh, asking with our interviewees is just a very simple, just how are you doing right now? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. Um, I'm doing great. I am really busy, partially because I am spending my time in a bunch of different ways, all of which make me very happy. So I'm performing um, with the Boston Symphony under kind of unusual conditions right now because of, of COVID. So that's been going along at about half speed, I would say, compared to our usual schedule. Right. And then I've been spending a lot of time in my coaching practice and in really um, rewarding conversations with people. So I'm very busy, but feeling quite fulfilled. I love that. Can you, um, before we get into kind of the coaching side of things, what has the BSO season looked like this past year? Yeah, we've been we've been very lucky in that um, our the the orchestra had enough financial resources to be able to invest in some infrastructure changes and um, arrange for testing for all of us, and so we've been back to work inside Symphony Hall um, with no audience, with a double sized stage, spaced out, regular testing. String players masked, of course, and when players not masked, um, but spaced even farther apart. And we've been making um, recordings for video. So we've been, you know, it's quite different from our usual four performances for live audiences every week and all of that. Um, But we've been working, you know, fairly steadily since the middle of the fall Mm -hmm. and putting out some really beautiful video productions that are combinations of orchestra performances and chamber music performances and some kind of lecture materials. It's been a nice opportunity, I think, for the organization to, to create some ways of reaching the audience that are different from our traditional route. Yeah, that's great. Have you found like that you're, I feel like a lot of orchestras right now have had more opportunities to play chamber music. So are you kind of enjoying that change a little bit? Yeah. And what's, what's been really great is we have been playing some smaller repertoire orchestra repertoire, but, but for more like a chamber orchestra sized Mm -hmm. ensemble, which we do a little bit less of when we're at our full capacity in the, in the season. Um, and we've also really been, um, branching out into some other composers that we haven't programmed in the past, which has been wonderful. We're seeing more women composers, more composers of other underrepresented groups. And um, it's been, it's been, it's been a really artistically satisfying season in spite of these very harrowing circumstances. 
That's so great. That's so great. I'm really glad to hear that you're all still working and, you know, getting to play, getting to play music. So many of us miss that so much. So I'm glad some people are getting to do it right now. Um, so I do want to talk about, you know, your background as a coach, but again, before we get into that, can you briefly tell our listeners about this equal pay lawsuit that you went through with the BSO? Yeah. Um, so I, was I think it was 2018. Um, you can read about it in the in the papers. It, it was in the newspapers that it, um, I was involved in an equal pay lawsuit um, with the Boston Symphony, and we we were able to settle it um, out, out of court, and that is all now resolved. But in the process of that, um, I'm really proud of the fact that. As a result of that, I think there's been a lot more conversation in our industry about just pay practices in general. And the Washington Post did a big um, investigative journalism piece around pay inequities across the entire industry and, and uncovered, you know, what we all I think have known or suspected or intuited for a long time, which is that there's not a lot of um, consistency in, in pay practices in the industry. And when there's a lot of inconsistency and there aren't kind of standard practices, then of course, like in any industry, things like implicit bias show up and that shows up around race, around gender, around all sorts of things. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's especially given in an orchestra, there are just so many different positions um, and everybody functions as an individual member of this whole. I can't imagine all of the different, you know, salaries and pay practices that go that go into that. So it's really amazing that you were able to really bring that to light in what is such an old industry in itself, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously th- that process had to be difficult. I mean, you, you've talked a little bit in the past about how you, you haven't really been a person who was on social media very much. And that has changed so much. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, well, I was going to use the past tense, past tense and say, I was a very private person. I think I still am a very private person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, however, I, I think over many years in a principal chair in a major orchestra, feeling a lot of scrutiny just simply because of my position, but also being one of the few women in a position like this, certainly in my orchestra, um, I really had turned to a very strong facade of professionalism and you might even say perfectionism um, to protect myself because I felt vulnerable, scrutinized, exposed in lots of ways. Um, Some of it comes with the territory with a job like that. And some of it was also... my particular sort of singularity as the only woman in the principal or in the chamber players with the, with the Boston symphony. And I'm sure some of it was my own temperament. So as a result, I spent a lot of years really putting up boundaries, putting up sort of an armor to protect myself. And what happened is really during the course of this lawsuit, um, I was contacted by so many women from so many different industries all over the place who shared their stories and them sharing their stories with me made me feel so much less alone, so much more seen. Um, and I realized it was, it was extraordinary. And I realized that I had 
much more of a community than I had been able to see for myself. And I started to understand the role of, you know, sharing your story, talking about your experiences, um, opening yourself up in a way that allows other people to, to reach you and allows you to reach them. And so that was the beginning of me starting to come to terms with the fact that I probably not only would or should, but actually could and would benefit from showing more of myself, sharing more of myself with the world. And of course, in this day and age, that usually requires some sort of social media presence. So I had no website. I wasn't on Facebook. Right. I, yeah. I was kind of lurking on Facebook under an <laughs> alias, but <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So, but I was not officially on, you know, on, uh, I mean, I had to catch up with like my friends, you know, across the country with their baby mm-hmm. pictures and that sort of thing. So, right. um, so I have been slowly moving in the direction of, I wouldn't say embracing it, but I would say uh, an increased comfort level with it, with the caveat that I do think that social media causes a lot of harm um, in mental health harm, um, emotional harm, all, all sorts of kinds of harm. So I, I have, I'm still of mixed feelings about it. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to bring that up that it's definitely a double-edged sword in so many ways, because we want to share those parts of ourselves and, and share in that with other people too. But the cost of, you know, seeing that all the time can create this, um, it's hard to, to understand your own worth. So that actually leads into my next question, which was at any point in that, that pay lawsuit practice, um, things like that, did you find yourself questioning, you know, your worth as a player, your worth as a, as a musician or just as a human? Oh, sure. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) And I think that that happens actually, regardless of whether you're involved in, you know, equal pay, issues. So many of the women who I've spoken to who have fought for equal pay in, in their own um, industries, it's really about, it's, it always boils down to, to, you know, what we would see or we'd call fairness, you know? So it's about that. that sort of already, so you talk about equal, or you can talk about equity too, which is a different idea, but, but um, so there's one concept, which is kind of fairness relative to others, but Setting that aside, I think in our industry and in our profession, it's very complicated because, you know, we live in a capitalist society. We tend to connect income or salary with value or worth or whatever language we want to use around that. Mm -hmm. And when you're an artist, when you're a musician, especially in a country like ours that doesn't support the arts really in any kind of profound way, if we're speaking about financial uh, support... I think it's quite dangerous for us to equate money with worth or self-worth or value. And yet there's a place to address that. And when we're talking about pay disparity and all of that, yes. So it's a little bit complicated to untangle all of those, those questions. Um, So I think, you know, (laughs) I see younger musicians really struggle with this. Also um, the distinction between I've been thinking about this distinction between, you know, what our job is, what we're, what we are paid to do versus kind of our passion, our, our life's work, the work we do that grants us meaning that is kind of connected to our purpose. And I think musicians have always been led to believe that those are the same thing, that the thing that pays us and the thing that has meaning and has purpose and has value 
are the same thing. And I think that they don't have to be necessarily. And so I think in other fields, other people, they have a job that pays them an income and they also have things that they do that they gain great you know, satisfaction from and they give them meaning and purpose. And sometimes that's connected to their job and sometimes it isn't. And I think as musicians, we really struggle with that because we expect the job to do all of it, to pay us enough to live on and to provide meaning and to do all of that. So it gets complicated. Yeah. It's something we talk about a lot is this idea of identity and what success means to us, because especially as this millennial generation that I'm a part of and being a, a young musician right now, who's just still kind of figuring out their career and having a pandemic, you know, I think a lot of musicians have turned to other interests because they've simply had to, um, to make, to make money. Right. And then I think it makes them question their worth. Like, am I just not cut out for this? Um, should I keep doing this because I can't make money doing it right now? And it, like you said, it's, it's very difficult to untangle all of those things. I mean, I myself got a full-time job during the pandemic in the mental health field, and I'm finding that a lot of this mental health work is what makes me feel fulfilled. Doesn't always pay me the most, but you know, it's, it's that trade. And I feel like a lot of times I get asked, or I ask other musicians, you know, what are your hobbies? And we don't really have any (laughs) in part because it's such a grueling um, career path. And in part, because again, we, we equate, you know, that career with our identities. Absolutely. And I think that you've really touched on something important because you know, there's a couple of really enormous opportunities for um, unhappiness and pain, which are, you know, we can either go looking for the job that will answer everything for us, that will do everything for us. And if, you know, that will give us a, a, a paycheck that will, you know, allow us to express ourselves, to to do work that is meaningful, to have purpose, whatever that means to each and any one of us. Um, And if we're not able to get that job, there can be a lot of questioning like you're describing and saying, you know, is there something wrong with me? Have I made the wrong choice? And then on the other side of the equation is the, when you do get the job that you think is going to provide all of that. And on the surface, it looks like you just did it. You just accomplished the thing. And then you realize that, wait a minute, I don't necessarily feel fulfilled and I don't necessarily feel like I'm doing anything that's that meaningful or as meaningful as I wanted it to be. And then what? And so I think it's a great exploration to, to, to embark on, to try to think about um, separating out these concepts, what pays me and, and then what I do that fulfills me and that feeds me and that sustains me and to not, to make sure that we have both. Those are both needs that we have to have met, but we can have them met in different ways and to be flexible in our thinking about how we get those needs met and to not necessarily assume one thing will do it all for us. And I think especially classical musicians have been led to believe that one thing will do it all for us. Yes. I I had one teacher in my undergrad who was saying, always said to us, you know, no job will make you happy. And me being an undergrad in music school was like, that's ridiculous. I'm going to get an orchestra job and then I'm going to be fine. And now that I'm older and I've had some success, I'm like, oh, I get it now. I get it. I can get all, I can have success and still not feel a hundred percent fulfilled because there are more things in life. So I think, yeah. Yeah. And I've also noticed, I think even, you know, certainly among young, young musicians, but among 
colleagues who are my age or older and different generations that when this pandemic happened and this, for those of us who are, for example, working in a job like the Boston Symphony, which can feel very all-consuming at times, when that stopped completely, it's quite interesting to observe what remains in your life. Like what else is there? And mm-hmm. if there isn't a lot else that you have been investing your time and energy and emotional resources into when the job stops, then setting aside, you know, obviously if there are financial fears and all of that, but just the sense of identity and the sense of purpose. And um, those of us who, for whatever reason, have other things in our lives, whether it's relationships, hobbies, other lines of work that we do, other interests, there, I think that transition into this different era that we're in at the moment was easier. And we had more resilience and we could sort of just turn into these other other areas and just pour more of ourselves into those other areas. So it's it's been quite interesting just to see that whole process. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, this leads nicely into, you know, you becoming a coach. So can you talk about what made you want to do that? Yeah. So I, a few years ago, I, um, started thinking about, you know, I've been thinking for a long time about kind of the next phase of my working life and what that might look like. And, um, I started exploring lots of things that, that interested me. And, um, I, I actually, I had spoken with another musician who had made a career change and who had, who had hired a coach to help them think it through and figure it out. And I thought, Oh, that's interesting. And, I met this very smart woman who was an executive coach and I talked to her about what she did and I thought, Oh, well maybe you could help me. And, um, we started just talking, just, just circling around, you know, what is it that I, that I, that gives me joy and beyond that, what is it that gives me energy? And I started to think back about the experiences that I've had in the last maybe 15 years of my career that have been the most meaningful to me and they aren't, you know, playing Daphnis with the Boston Symphony. That's great. I, I'm not, I'm not taking that for granted, but the things that stay with me have been all these conversations that I've had over the years with, especially with a particular demographic of musicians who tend to be kind of early in their careers out of school, um, coming to me for advice, guidance, perspective, help thinking through a lot of the things that we're talking about today, the questions of career, personal life, um, balancing all of that. And I I realized that in many ways I've been essentially coaching for a long time because coaching really is different. so different from teaching with teaching you offer knowledge and expertise and, you know, um, if we're talking about music, we're offering, you know, technical skills. We're talking about that. And mentorship is a little bit kind of sharing your own life and career experiences with someone and helping them lead them, you know, through, through their career. Also coaching is a lot more thought partnership and really being a thinking facilitator. And I, I started to realize that I had, without knowing it or naming it, had been doing a lot of that and getting a tremendous amount of, joy and energy from that. So once I made that connection and understood that that work was deeply meaningful to me and very energizing, um, I started to learn how to, to formalize it and, and be trained in it and to understand what 
what the systems are and the tools and all of that that we can employ. Um, and it's it's been the most rewarding work that I've done in my in my life. And I've had a very privileged life and had all sorts of wonderful ways to spend my time. And this is the, is the most satisfying and exciting to me. That's so wonderful that it's so fulfilling and it makes you so happy. And like you said, it, it really gives you energy. So obviously, I mean, before this, you've studied your whole life, you've, you're a musician. And so how has being a musician influenced your abilities as a coach? Yeah, it's such a great question because I work. So with my coaching work, I work with musicians and also with people who are not musicians. And what's so interesting to me is, um, a couple of things, you know, I think we musicians have been, we tend to be very introspective people. We tend to go deep. We tend to think deep. We do these big explorations of, you know, where are my flaws? Um, how can I grow? We've been doing this in, in our, in the context of our music making for so long that we are naturally inclined to do that. And that can also, that can be a, a, a good thing. And it can be a challenge, right? Because we can become perfectionist. We can become very self-critical. We can internalize a lot of the um, uh, constructive criticism or, or not constructive criticism we've received over all the years. And so with musicians, a lot of the work I do is to help them pull out of some of that, you know, fierce inner critic kind of talk. Um, mm -hmm. with, with non-musicians, you know, that exists also, but a lot of people who aren't musicians it takes a little longer for them to develop that awareness of their own internal landscape. And so it's been interesting for me because so much of my early work was with musicians and I kind of took that for granted. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so okay. with some other people, it's been interesting to kind of help them make room for that in their own, in their own minds. So more complexity, more nuance, more gray, like shades of gray. And I think we musicians, you know, I can, I can talk about it in terms of, you know, colors of sound or phrasing and shapes right. and, you know, notes aren't long or short. They, they can be anywhere between long and short and they can have all sorts of, you know, variety. And so when I'm working with people who tend to think very black and white or very polarized um, with musicians, I can kind of pull at those threads pretty easily. And with non-musicians, it's been, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to, to see how to help them develop language around that also. Yeah. I was just going to say, it sounds like you, you have to learn a whole new language to, to be able to talk to people who aren't musicians. And, you know, it's interesting, like so much of what you're talking about reminds me of a lot of work that therapists do to help kind of untangle all of these thoughts and look at them and reframe them in a different way. So what are your thoughts on how this all ties back to mental health? Great question. So, you know, it's interesting because a number of the people that I work with who are my coaching clients are also in therapy and they also work with therapists or they certainly have, I have worked with therapists. I have been in therapy myself and worked with coaches myself. And there are some similarities and some big differences also. And I think, you know, therapy is really about healing a lot of past trauma. It's about understanding the way that your history kind of informs your your current way of, of, of operating in the world and really addressing, you know, when I say trauma, I think sometimes we use the word trauma. We consider trauma to be kind of major trauma, you know, like right. something identifiable like a death or something. But I think trauma is, you know, any 
deeply painful experience that that has stayed with us, right? That has shaped us and that has lingered. Um, so neglect can be a form of trauma. There's all sorts of trauma that we sometimes don't doesn't rise to the level of like giant, you know, catastrophe, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. surviving a tsunami or something like that, but yes. it, it is, is still absolutely uh, meaningful and powerful. And so therapy, the work of therapy is to, to heal that, to address that, to, to kind of help a person move past that, not by ignoring it, but by, you know, um, addressing it. So, and then coaching really, is taking a person where they are right now and and looking forward and more about, um, steps, action steps to take. Um, and yet I think the best coaching, you, you can't just fail to acknowledge the, the reasons and the ways in which a person became the way they are. So it does reach back into the past in some way, but it's not, kind of in a, in a therapeutic way, in that sort of way, it's right. more of an, an understanding where, why we are the way we are. It's like reading the label on the jar. Sometimes it's yes. like, if you're the jam inside the jar, it's hard to read the label on the outside yes. and to find out which, yes. who you, what you are. So it's some, there's some of it is helping you just read your own label or like a, de- uh, a, a decipher your the owner's manual, like the operating system. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we try to understand the operating system, read the label on the jar, and then with that knowledge, go forward. Um, but I think that especially with, especially with musicians, um, we are, I think we are asked to be vulnerable in a way with what we do when we perform. We make ourselves open, we open ourselves to, to criticism and to feedback a lot intentionally or, or not intentionally. But I think that many, many musicians have suffered really deep wounds in, in their past as a result, as part of it, during the course of their education, during the course of their careers. And I think that my, my guess is, is that the majority of musicians would really benefit from being in the hands of a, of a really well-trained mental health provider and that there we I, I really feel strongly that it's important to remove any stigma around that in in, in general but specifically in our field as well yeah and it, it it means so much for to hear you know the principal flutist of the boston symphony say i've been to therapy and, and like as simple as that you know it, it seems like this big thing that we have to hide. I mean, that's what stigma is. Right. But, but for all of us to just acknowledge like that, we've all needed help at some point. And, you know, some of us go to therapy for our entire lives and that that's okay. That it doesn't have to be that different from having a coach or having a teacher. Um, so I just, I think, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm so confused and perplexed by this idea of the stigma that we just want help reframing our thoughts and addressing these issues that we might have. Um, especially as musicians, like you said, because, we have dealt with traumatic experiences because of the nature of our career by putting ourselves on the line every single day. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, I'm wondering, has all of this changed your relationship with music in any way? Yeah, that's another really great question. I, I think I'm still in a state of, questioning about my relationship with music because part of that is a result of my good fortune and privilege and just the 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 fact that I went pretty much from you know school 
to New World Symphony, to my first job, to my next job, to my next job, to my next job, and just kind of went forward and never stopped to ask myself, like, how did I get here? Is this what I really want? What does this actually mean? Do, what do I love about music? Is it the music itself? Is it the performance? Is it now I ask myself the question, is it in the presence of an audience? Does that matter? Um, so this is an open question for me in terms of getting clarity around this for myself, because um, I think I've never really had the opportunity to, or been forced to consider that some of that is out of privilege because I've never been in this question of, do I keep pursuing this career path or not? Cause it just unrolled for me in a certain way. Um, so I think that what I, what I recognize, I think more in the work that I'm doing with others than I do in myself, but I think that's in there in myself also is this really profound question of how much of our identity really is as an artist or as a musician. Is that who we are or is that what we do? And for each of us, that's a different answer. And I think for me, it's closer to what I do. I think who I am is a little bit different from an artist. I think if you asked me who I am, I would probably say I'm a, uh, a person who loves to be in conversation with people and in relationship with people. And maybe music was my opportunity to do that for a while. And I have other ways of doing that now as well, but I probably wouldn't actually say through and through I'm an artist first and, and, and most importantly, I just, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't have a great answer. Yeah. I think what you're saying too makes me think that it can, it's okay for that to be a shifting thing, like a moving target in some ways that we can, you know, have times in our life where we feel more like maybe an artist is, is who we are. And then we can have times where we feel like, you know, those other passions and things that we're pursuing better represent who we are inside. Um, yeah. And they don't, they don't have to be in conflict with each other too. And they don't, we don't have to choose. We get to check all the boxes if we want to, right. We get, we don't have to choose, I think. And sometimes it does feel like we have to choose. And especially early on when, you know, there is a tremendous amount of energy required to achieve a certain level of skill on an instrument to be taking auditions. If that's what you're doing, um, there is a lot of dedication. It's not quite like training for the Olympics, but it's pretty darn close. Right. And mm -hmm. Olympic athletes don't exactly have like side gigs that are right. You know, like they're not writing novels on the side, right. They're right. just training and probably working a job to pay the bills another job. But, um, so I think that it, it is natural kind of earlier in life to be kind of singularly focused on this. And yet there, that's also, I think a little bit of a, um, a uh, how do I put this? The temptation to become singularly focused on it and the expectation that that singular focus will pay off, I think is not totally accurate. So in other words, I think it's very easy to be singularly focused and have your entire identity be wrapped up in your music making early in the career both because it is very, you know, it does require a lot and because there's a sort of simplicity about that. But I also think that that's a great time in your life to start to learn how to make space for other things so that that habit and that practice is established, you know, early on so that it becomes, it's almost like if you're a person that builds time to meditate into your schedule or time to exercise or time to, you know, do whatever it is that 
helps you feel good, it's better to start that as as early as you can, not wait for sort of the right circumstances to, to start doing all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, we've had so much time over the last year that a lot of us have asked that question of who, who am I? Kind of like what we talked about earlier. Who am I? What am I doing? What really matters to me? And I think if musicians gave themselves that opportunity to ask themselves that question a lot sooner, like you said, we would be in a very different place. I think, um, this has been absolutely amazing to just get your thoughts on all of this. And I just, I want to thank you so much. I mean, you're an inspiration to so many people, including myself. And, you know, you just have this very giving spirit in everything that you do. So I just want to say thank you again. Thank you for this really wonderful conversation and for opening up dialogue around these really important subjects. It's such a, it's such a gift that you're doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Sound Mind podcast. Special thanks to Elizabeth Rowe for joining me this week and to our producer, Dan Monty. We hope to see you next time.